So thank you, Paloma, for a very nice introduction and uh, for all of you for coming. Um, so I am reading from my new book and the book is in three sections. And um, today I have a double feature today because I talk, gave a talk at noon to another group. And um, but uh, the thing is, I, I brought all three sections and I could read from any of them. Um, it is about performance in politics. I look at work from the 80s, 90s, and the noughts. And uh, I thought um, if, you know, if, if there was an overlap of audiences between earlier today and later, that perhaps I should read the second, from the second section instead of the first. But if I do that, then you're, you would be, I wouldn't be setting up the argument, which is what I do in the beginning. Also, the first section is much shorter, so I could finish it within the time. And the second section I'm going to have to lift out of. The first section is called Scandalous Speaking Bodies, and it's really about um, kind of how performance art sets itself up as the cutting edge in a way of, of art practice in Cuba in the 80s, but also the, um, the, the source of kind of the gadfly in the system of, um, you know, of the, an ongoing battle between cultural producers and the state. And in the second section, I deal more with the culture of surveillance and how artists respond to that and the way in which the culture of surveillance affects the socialization of political conduct. So it's up to you. What I do, um, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna let you guys decide. So you tell me, would you? Would you, do you mind diving in in medias rex? And would you rather that I read to you about surveillance, or would you rather hear about the beginning and the scandalous speaking bodies? Anybody have surveillance? You want to hear about surveillance? Surveillance? Is people want to hear about surveillance? Okay. So well, because you already heard the first one. Yeah. Um, Okay, so then I'll read from the section on surveillance. And if it is, if, if because I can't read it all because it's over 40 pages long, if there's stuff that you don't understand, please either stop me and, you know, get me to, by raising your hand or ask questions at the end. All right, so an archaeology of Cuban conduct. So it starts with a quote from Che Guevara's uh, Man and Socialism in Cuba. To sum up, the fault of many of our intellectuals and artists is to be found in their original sin. They are not authentically revolutionary. Obispo Street is a long pedestrian walkway that stretches from the Plaza de Armas in Old Havana past the Floridita restaurant, which Ernest Hemingway once frequented, to the Parque Central near the majestic Capitolio building. Lined with hotels for tourists and shops for Cubans, the street is full of people at all hours of the day and well into the night. Surveillance cameras are perched on every block of the walkway. In 2002, seven students from Ruslan Torres' Art and Experience Workshop, collectively known as the Department of Public Interventions, set out to determine what subjective and objective responses might be triggered by producing a semblance of suspicious activity on Obispo Street. They chose an aluminum briefcase as their prop to give the impression that contraband articles were being exchanged among them. At 30-minute intervals, they passed the briefcase from one group member to another as they walked down the street, entered stores, lounged in hotel lobbies, and sat at cafeteria counters. 
According to Torres, the participants were supposed to perform suspicious-looking gestures and movements to attract attention. Grainy black and white mock surveillance camera images documenting the piece show a group member walking with, a, with what appears to be a sense of purpose rather than sauntering, but no one around him seems to take notice. The performance, entitled The Drama of Becoming Another, Paranoia, did not provoke a response from police or state security. However, according to one of the participants, Maria Victoria, uh, Victoria Portelles, the experience of engaging in the simulation did generate extreme paranoia in the minds of the performers, who feared that the police might read their feigned illicit activity as true criminality. In correspondence and public statements about the work, Torres claims that he sought to induce the heightened emotional state that, quote, we experience when we internalize the apparatus of power, unquote. His goal was to create conditions for his students to refine their awareness of the panopticon as a regulator of behavior in public space. Although Cuba has a panopticon-style prison, the now defunct Presidio Modelo, whose circular structure allowed one watchman in a central tower to observe all the inmates, Torres is not referring to an actual architectonic structure. He is invoking Foucault's notion of the anonymous power of surveillance as a regulator of behavior and panopticism as the condition of constant visibility. His descriptions of the project do not mention anything about Cuban state security or the national network of citizens' watch committees that guarantees the scrutability of Cuba's inhabitants. Nevertheless, he concedes that the responses of his students were limited to worries about possible responses from law enforcement. Their mental image of an omniscient observable force was that of a Cuban police officer. Artist Humberto Diaz, another of Torres's former students, also created a performance that involved Cuban surveillance cam cameras a few years later after the staging of the drama of Becoming Another Paranoia. In his 2009 series, Citizen H, Passive Observer Number 6, the artist stands on several Havana street corners, staring at surveillance cameras for brief periods of time before walking away. The video and photo of photos of Citizen H looking at the surveillance cameras place the viewer in the position of a voyeur who watches him at a distance without engaging him or unraveling the cause of his movements. Diaz defines his performance character as the representation of an ordinary person driven by routines and passive obedience rather than conscious thought. He claims that taking the character's empty gestures to an extreme reveals flaws in Cuban society, but he limits his most critical language to the characterization of the performance persona, saying nothing about governing institutions. Diaz says that his performance functions as a visual dialogue between the artist and state power, but he qualifies that, uh, that assertion by underscoring that this is not an act of aggression against the state. It is simply a gesture of self-awareness. The lack of punitive... Oops. My light! Oh, it doesn't want to behave. Come on. You were doing well before. Work for me. Uh, the lack of punitive response from Cuban state authorities to these two performances 
gives the impression that policing on the island is measured, precise, and uninterested in the symbolic activities of artists. Both Dias and the Department of Public Interventions are concerned with surveillance and its effect on public behavior. At the same time, the artists resort to disclaimers to define their respective purposes. They don't really want to provoke a confrontation with state authorities, and they don't really want to engage in acts of aggression. Their merging of art with life has a limit. They separate the subjective awareness of the psychological effects of surveillance from the objective experiences of being detected by the surveyors, and they avoid any analysis of the political function of generalized monitoring. One might argue here that this splitting of the subjective from the objective dimensions of surveillance constitutes a necessary abstraction of a social phenomenon, one that is required in order for it to enter the self-contained realm of the aesthetic. Nonetheless, there are significant counterexamples of art about surveillance that have engaged with actual monitoring systems, both in other uh, countries and in Cuba. During the 2009 Havana Biennial, for example, Cuban artists Yeni Casanueva and Alejandro González disseminated a digital dossier entitled Work Catalog Mail Plus One that featured actual police records detailing how high-profile Cuban artists, foreign curators, and diplomatic officials at the 2006 Biennial had been monitored by state security. Their gesture recalls conceptual exposés of the interrelation between finance capital and symbolic capital, such as Sapolsky et al. Manhattan Real Estate Holdings, a real-time social system as of May 1, 1971, in which the artist Hans Hacke used public records to show how a corporation acting as a Lower East Side slumlord generated profits from questionable transactions. Casanueva and Gonzalez subtitled their revelatory missive, A Work of Art, that shows how the category of art in Cuba is based on political concepts that determine artistic budgets and how this defines what is understood as art at the Havana Biennial. The artists had immigrated to Spain after their urban intervention territorial references was shut down by police in August 2008, and Gonzalez was detained, despite the fact that they had secured the permission to carry out their project at an abandoned Havana pier. According to Casanueva, they were stopped because the timing of their opening coincided with the anniversary of the 1994 mass protest known as El Maleconazo, and police sought to preempt any public activity that might recall that event. Subsequently, the artist received an unsolicited visit from a state security agent who demanded that they copy their personal documents onto his flash drive. In a bold act of counter-surveillance, Casanueva and Gonzalez downloaded the files that were on the agent's drive before handing over copies of their own. This surreptitious pilfering of state property, redefined by Casanueva and Gonzalez as an artistic act, constituted a far more politically charged exchange with state power than the one suggested metaphorically by Diaz in Citizen H or Torres' students. According to the artists, their island-based colleagues have shunned them since they distributed their catalog. In the comments they included in their digital dossier, Casanueva and Gonzalez were openly critical of state surveillance and state control of the Cuban art sector, though their tone was one of regret. Complaints about surveillance as a form of state violence in Cuba that appear in videos by dissident musicians and the writings of dissident bloggers are far more bombastic. 
The musician Gorky Aguila, leader of the officially banned punk band Porno para Ricardo, which means pornography for Richard, posted a video on YouTube in 2002 in which he speaks directly to his own camera, inviting his viewer into his home. He shows his viewers a surveillance camera across the street from his apartment, which, he claims, was installed to watch him. Speaking rapidly with apparent annoyance, Aguila expresses indignation at this violation of privacy, while he simultaneously reveals his private space and personal troubles to another desired online viewer whose gaze, it is implied, is empathetic rather than disciplinary. With irony dripping from his voice, Aguila explains that the surveillance camera was installed after his band performed on his balcony without authorization. He speculates that the authorities opted for surveillance cameras to watch over him because of a dearth of available policemen. And then he criticizes the government for spending its limited hard currency on monitoring musicians rather than feeding its hungry population. Aguila's monologue, directed at the two cameras, is a performance of defiance that is indivisible from his objective experience of subjection to state power. Unlike Ruslan Torres' students, who have avoided skirmishes with police and have enjoyed consistent support from Cuba's cultural apparatus, Aguila has been arrested twice since 2003, served a four-year prison sentence, and is forbidden from playing in official venues in Cuba. His recalcitrance has become his signature statement as an artist. He makes a point of behaving badly in public. He mocks the revolution during his performances by wearing a pioneer's scarf and school uniform. He poses for press photos in a t-shirt that says, 1959, the year of the mistake. He writes lyrics that poke fun at the Castro brothers. He parodies revolutionary graphics in his promotional materials, and he proclaims his lack of regard for Cuba's political system in every press interview. Aguila also maintains a video diary of his confrontations with state authorities, which transforms his personal experience of punitive state power into a public performance. His video about being surveyed in his home is an example of the culture of counter-surveillance that has emerged in the past decade in Cuba, revealing forms of state control that had once been practiced in secret. Casanueva and Gonzalez carried out their culture jamming of the Cuban security apparatus from outside the island, but a growing number of cultural producers are engaging in counter-surveillance from within. These very different responses to Cuba's culture of surveillance are unified by their focus on its effects on the self and its relationship with art. What is not immediately visible in them, however, is the history of the socialization of Cuban subjects in relation to the watchful eye of the state. The influence of surveillance on Cuban conduct lurks behind the tentative curiosity of the art students, the presumed bewilderment of the average citizen, the revenge of censored artists, and the defiance of the dissident. It is the distinctive characteristics of Cuba, Cuban panopticism that have turned the mental image of the policeman into the prevailing symbol of absolute state power, prompting artists to respond while also informing how they experience their professional identity in a highly regulated society. Social and political conduct in Cuba are shaped by surveillance because policing there is not limited to the control of what would usually defi be defined as criminal acts against persons, property, or the state. 
Cuban surveillance is also designed to ferret out signs of ideological nonconformity. Artists have always been on its radar because of a history of distrust of their endeavor, stemming in part from an orthodox Marxist view of immaterial labor as nonproductive, a perspective that prevailed in Cuba in the 1960s and 1970s. Even as the Cuban government began to allow artists to buy and sell their own work and negotiate directly with foreigners in the 1990s, the suspicion that their international contacts might represent a threat to national security did not diminish. On the contrast, contrary, artists' privileged spot in the international limelight forms the rationale for their subjection to surveillance. Ruslan Torres called upon his students to look within themselves in order to understand how their immediate social environment affected their conduct and then implement their awareness in their art. I would argue that the history of how artists have been positioned in Cuba in relation to notions of good and bad political conduct is equally important for comprehending how codes of behavior have become both a subject for Cuban art and a means of making it. Over the past five decades, the Cuban state has propagated a culture of permanent vigilance through the continuous invocation of real and imagined enemies. According to this worldview, the revolution is a never-ending battle against threats to its existence, and all members of the polit Cuban political community must prioritize its defense over their personal needs and desires. The legitimacy of this defensive paradigm rests on the display of evidence of threats, which in post-revolutionary Cuba range from actual physical threats against territory and against its population to presumed evasion of political responsibilities to the community. While many countries require citizen participation in national defense through military service, the Cuban government has militarized nearly every aspect of daily life, dubbing all social and economic efforts battles, and thereby subjecting a much broader range of activity and behavior to state control in the name of national defense. The frequent official usage of the term combatividad as a positive description of a person's willingness to fight for the revolution's principles, rather than a negative description of pugnaciousness, is another indication of the way in which militarized concepts have become standard measurements of good conduct. The beginning of the Cuban Revolution was marked by public demonstrations of vengeance against an already vanquished enemy. In the first weeks of 1959, Fidel Castro and his guerrilla army staged military tribunals in a sports stadium before a crowd of 18,000 spectators and journalists, that, and journalists that led to the execution of hundreds of military and civilian officials who had supported the Batista dictatorship. The televised performance of revolutionary justice that was carried out by bearded guerrillas insisted by people's witnesses was a dramatic invitation to the general population to participate in a ritualized purge through which a new society could be formed. The most famous images from the trials show Cuban citizens, young and old, pointing their fingers at the accused, a performative gesture that condemned their targets to death. Newsreel shots in Havana in the first year of the revolution showed crowds filling public plazas with signs demanding for more executions. 
the revolutionary government also waged numerous successful campaigns against armed opposition groups in the 1960s, the best known of which was its thwarting of a U.S.-backed invasion at the Bay of Pigs in 1961. Once violent opposition was destroyed, the pursuit of an internal ideological enemy came to the foreground. Mass culture was marshaled to enlist citizens in that effort. The Cuban Revolution constituted its political community not only by building socialism through education, industrialization, and redistribution of national resources. It also demanded mass cooperation in the identification and expulsion of undesirables. In the mid-1960s, as the UMOP labor camps were set up for the re-education of social misfits, homosexuals, the religious, hippies, prostitutes, and artists, Cuban popular media derided personas, tastes, and behaviors that the socialist state associated with capitalist decadence. Magazines such as Revista Mella featured articles enjoining politically committed students to denounce peers who appeared to be effeminate, to like Western fashion, books, music, or modern art, and to view them as elements undeserving of the revolution's benefits, which included higher education. Cartoons and satirical illustrations featured a Manichaean world of robust machete-swinging revolutionaries versus scrawny, long-haired, effeminate types who longed for rock and roll and G.I. Joe. Designed to induce performances of cooperation with revolutionary discipline, such media also forged an association in popular consciousness between ideological deviants and artists. The case of poet Nestor Diaz de Villegas provides an example of the effectiveness of these campaigns. In 1974, when he was an 18-year-old pre-university student, he was arrested and charged with ideological diversionism. At his trial, his peers, his school director, and his school's communist youth leader testified that he had circulated a poem in which he made fun of the renaming of a street after the ousted Chilean president Salvador Allende and that he refused to participate in obligatory readings of Fidel's speeches, speeches in classes. He was awarded a six-year prison sentence. From the panoptic culture of perpetual vigilance emerged the figure of the informant who performs his or her surveillance duties by means of infiltration. Cubans knowingly cooperate with informants, who knowingly cooperate with informants, may have been coerced and to do so to clear themselves of suspicion, or may do so in search of greater privileges. The culture of vigilance also gave rise to acts of repudiation. These collective political performances are officially treated as expressions of popular will, but they are in fact orchestrated by state organizations that mobilize students, workers, and community groups to harass presumed political opponents. One of the most famous public acts of repudiation occurred in 1991 when poet and activist Maria Elena Cruz Varela was dragged out of her apartment and taunted by a crowd made up of members of the Federation of Cuban Women who forced her to literally eat her words by stuffing pages from her political pamphlets into her mouth. Moder modified versions of acts of repudiation take place behind closed doors when political authorities call upon the associates of a suspected internal enemy to denounce that person via written testimony or rhetorical assaults. 
An artist suspect's colleagues may suggest, for example, that he or she frequents the U.S. interest section and is therefore politically untrustworthy. Or they might provide quasi-aesthetic arguments as to why the suspect's artworks are ill-conceived. Meetings orchestrated by UNIAC, or cultural ministry outlets, or for another opportunity to isolate and condemn targeted artists, or simply to damn them with faint praise when that is deemed politically expedient. Acts of repudiation first became visible outside Cuba during the 1980 occupation of the Peruvian embassy that preceded the Mariel Boatlift, when thousands of citizens took to the streets of Havana to excoriate the thousands of their compatriots who had chosen to emigrate. Personal testimony of those who left the island emphasizes that the acts of repudiation featured verbal harassment and physical brutality against the emigres. However, official representation of the revolution's first public display of mass discontent treated the popular response as an orderly and symbolic battle between loyalists and traitorous worms. A 1980 newsreel produced by the legendary Cuban documentarian Santiago Álvarez, entitled The March of the Combative People, offers a favorable view of mass rejection of dissent. Held ostensibly to commemorate the Bay of Pigs' victory, the march passed in front of the Peruvian embassy just two weeks after 10,000 Cubans took refuge inside seeking asylum, signaling that its purpose exceeded the commemoration of the failed 1961 invasion. Alvarez's newsreel mixes anti-American cartoons about the Bay of Pigs invasion with footage of Cuban crowds carrying signs that pledged allegiance to Fidel and vilified those who sought to emigrate. The fusion of these two historical moments transformed the march into a continuation of a revolutionary battle against agents of imperialism, the boats carrying CIA-backed exiles in 1961 who tried to invade Cuba merge with the flotilla of fishing boats hired by exiles in Miami in 1980 to pick up their relatives on the island. Alvarez's intertitles note that more than a million citizens marched in 13 hours and 17 minutes, not one weapon, not one bullet was used." Unquote. Popular Cuban musicians have also championed and decried these aggressive displays of political allegiance and punishment. In the early days of the revolution, the legendary troubadour and ardent fidelista Carlos Puebla paraphrased the rallying cries of incensed crowds when he encouraged his leader to be tough with the one who raises his head and remind opponents that they could be executed in the song, Be Hard on Him, Duro con el Fidel, is in, in Spanish. Several decades later, reflecting a cynical turn in popular sentiment, the reggaeton singer Manolo lambasted informants who betray their friends in exchange for rewards with police. His 2012 music video uh, for the song, You Are Collaborating, or Tu Estás Colaborando, features residents of a poor barrio pointing their fingers at an, at an imagined informant, while the singer tells the collaborator that he knows he's on the other side, even if he comes from the neighborhood. The creation of a revolutionary society in Cuba did not depend solely on the pursuit of enemies. It also entailed the production of political subjects with a new set of values that would motivate selfless behavior. 
citizens had to be taught how to behave as revolutionaries in a rapidly changing social order, in which one's actions and conduct had become the principal measure of worth rather than one's wealth. Modeling conduct thus became a key component of Cuba's revolutionary education, and evaluating conduct became an important aspect of revolutionary discipline. In Marx's terms, the vanguard was to preside over the transformation of the Cuban citizenry into new men and women who would sacrifice material gain for the larger social cause of bringing socialism into being. The ideal subject had to show willingness to participate in its economic, educational, and militaristic agendas through demonstrations of revolutionary sacrifice, as well as through performances of allegiance. Obligatory uh, displays of patriotism were incorporated into every political ceremony and school functions. The continuously conveyed message was that the revolution was expanding educational and professional possibilities, but Cubans had to perform patriotic duties to ensure access to those gains. That message, which has been disseminate, disseminated through billboards, magazines, newsreels, and political speeches for decades, was also incorporated into early schooling. Cuban children's first reading primers featured statements such as, yesterday and today, the people say Cuba yes, Yankees no, and every Cuban is a soldier. In good hands, a rifle is good, and the guerrilla fighter is brave. As they progressed to high school, they would be taught to evaluate and criticize peers on the basis of their not having demonstrated sufficient revolutionary conduct. Okay, I'm going to skip a few pages here and go to the part where I talk about how artists begin to um, deal with this. Okay. Cuban artists of the past three decades are all products of an educational system that combines the imparting of knowledge and skills with the modeling of socialist conduct. It is impossible to predict the degree to which each individual accepts and acts on the rules of good and bad conduct, but awareness of the existence of those rules is unavoidable. Even if once popular terms for, terms for deviance, such as ideological diversionism, have become outdated, the memory of those terms remains, and legal categories such as social dangerousness serve a similar stigmatizing function. The codes of political conduct do occasionally surface in Cuban art as discursive regimes that are alluded to, though not always challenged. Open criticism of current state practices has provoked repressive responses, which in many instances has led to self-censorship as a defense mechanism. Those artists who seek to address the state's role in shaping conduct usually do so through ironic reinterpretation of overused slogans, revolutionary tropes, and political postures. Underlying this approach is a tacit understanding that the restrictions on public discourse leave Cubans with only one safe way to be critical, which is to parrot officially sanctioned language for an audience accustomed to reading between the lines. Artist Lázaro Saavedra is well known for his cartoons that poke fun at official discourses in culture and politics. His mixed media work entitled Ideology Detector from 1989 to 2010, because he did it once and then redid it many years later, 
includes an electronic sensor that purports to measure the spectator's degree of deviance on a scale that begins with without problems, moves on to unconsciously or consciously counter-revolutionary, and ends with diversionist. The humor lies in Saavedra's mechanization of an act of political discernment, substituting a sensor, which suggests precision and objectivity, for a censor, whose actions are likely to be more subjective and arbitrary. In 1988, a very young but feisty Aldito Menendez leaned a painting against a gallery wall with the incomplete phrase, Reviva la Revolu, revive the Revolu, but Revolu also means the mess. Um, and set a basket next to it to solicit public contributions for the completion of the work. <laughs> he was making fun of the unquestioning expression of political loyalty, Viva la Revolución, long live the revolution, while also dramatizing the lack of public support for Cuba's political project and demonstrating art's inability to improve social conditions on its own. During that same year, artists Glexis Novoa and Carlos Cárdenas appeared in traditional white guayaberas and straw hats to perform rock campesino at an art opening with an oxymoronic title that joined opposing ends of the ideological spectrum, rock being perceived by Cuban authorities as American and suspect and peasant being indigenous and authentic and therefore desirable. They poked fun at the official strategy of diverting attention from conceptually informed and politically critical art by showcasing folkloric displays of Cubanness. Between 2000 and 2010, artist Hamlet La Bastida created several stenciled murals in Havana consisting of quotes from famous political speeches of the 1960s to contrast the heroic assertions of the early years of the revolution with what he perceived as the actual decadence of that political order. The tone of his works is a far cry from the satirical bent of 1980s art. La Bastida's approach is ironic, but deadpan. His text murals refer to such controversial topics as the UMAP camps and the 1968 trial and imprisonment of several members of the Cuban popular socialist party known as La Microfacción. According to the artist, some of his teachers considered his text-based work to be too politically inflammatory and threatened him with expulsion from the University of the Arts. He was not permitted to give a public reading of his final thesis in its entirety, though this was standard practice for graduating students. He also claims that he was instructed by Tanya Bruguera to remove his quote from Fidel Castro's words to intellectuals from the exterior of Galeria Havana, where the group show by her behavior workshop students was held during the 2009 Havana Biennial. Other artists have chosen a somewhat more ambiguous treatment of the exigencies of revolutionary conduct. In 1990, a wave of censorship of art exhibitions that led to a mass exodus of artists, after a wave, sorry, of censorship of art ex exhibitions that led to a mass exodus of artists, René Francisco, whose paintings of Fidel Castro were censored in 1989, turned to social engagement as a key component of his art pedagogy. His venture, known as DUP, an acronym for Desde una Pragmática Pedagógica, or based on a pedagogical pragmatics, um, its first group project was entitled The National House. He and his students chose a multi-unit apartment building in central Havana um, and offered themselves as central laborers who could repair paint and decorate in accordance with the tenants' desires. 
Those social practice projects by definition involve community engagement outside traditional art contexts. It is politically significant in Cuba that the artists adopted the behavior of skilled but selfless helpers, forsaking aesthetic judgment to better serve the people, shortly after their peers had been sanctioned for asserting themselves vis-a-vis -vis state power. Among the punishments meted out to Cuban intellectuals for improper conduct is forced manual and agricultural labor in work camps and micro-brigades. Cuban artists are not only cognizant of the politics of conduct because of their socialization as Cubans, they are also inheritors of a troubled legacy as artists and intellectuals in a political order that has a history of treating all creative endeavors as potentially, if not actually, dangerous. Although the harshest treatment of intellectuals and artists as a suspect class occurred before the visual arts renaissance of the 1980s, traces of the rhetoric, perceptions, and disciplinary methods persist in Cuban culture into the present day. Certain forms of derision have faded away. One no longer finds blanket dismissals of modern art trends or caricatures linking artists with effeminacy in Cuban popular media. Several artists and writers who were blacklisted in the past or who went into exile have been rehabilitated and restored to the Cuban national canon. Nevertheless, as demonstrated by Casanueva and Gonzalez in their work catalog Mail Plus One, state security continues to monitor the activities of even the most celebrated Cuban artists, playing close, close attention to their interactions with foreigners. Cuban artists with and without professional credentials continue to be arrested for presenting works in public spaces without authorization. The distinction between officially and supported artists and unofficial artists is not reducible to union affiliation or the possession of advanced degrees. The most important division is a political one between those who are openly critical of the state and those who are not. However, an artist in good standing is not free from political scrutiny, nor is his or her status unchangeable. And for you, those of you who follow the Cuban art scene and may know about the case of Tania Brujera, who was the recipient of numerous national awards and is, was then in late December arrested for attempting to do an unauthorized performance in the Revolutionary Plaza and has since had her pass passport taken away from her, is a case in point here. The institutions that were established in the 1970s to provide a stable framework for cultural management also generated their own professionally specific demands for demonstrations of allegiance from artists and writers. Graduates of the University of the Arts, like their peers in other professions, are required to perform two years of social service after completing their degrees, during which they are dispatched to work at cultural organizations around the island. During Cuba's military involvement in Angola, artists such as Jose Vedia were sent there on cultural missions. Prominent cultural uh, figures such as the musician Silvio Rodriguez and visual arts superstar Cacho, Alexis Leiva, have assumed political office as parliamentary deputies and are routinely called up to publicly defend the state. In 2012, Cacho became the object of much derision in social media for his proposal that Cuban artists pay more taxes and work on a volunteer basis for the people. The security apparatus also uses artists with close ties to political officials as role models when disciplining lesser known and more unruly artists. In his accounts of the travails of the collective Arte Calle, 
which he formed in the mid-1980s, Aldito Menendez recalls being escorted to an exhibition of work by Orlando Hernandez Llanes, whom he characterized as a court painter after having been obligated to attend a screening for artists and musicians of an eight-hour speech by Fidel Castro. The contemporary dissident graffiti artist Danilo Maldonado Machado, who, by the way, has been in prison since December 26th, known as El Sexto, recently noted in an interview that police took him to visit Cacho's studio so that he could learn how to behave like a, quote, real Cuban artist. The degree to which artists demonstrate willingness to donate works to the state, to participate in political activities, and to collaborate on cultural products that are overtly political in nature has a cumulative effect on their professional status. Too much distancing of oneself from political responsibility can result in reprisal, while too much acquiescence creates the impression of abject subservience that, critics suggest, substitutes for actual talent and indicates a lack of political wisdom. The preferred approach of many officially supported artists is silence in the face of excessive politicization of any form of expression. But there are situations in which neutrality becomes either impossible or suspect. Among the most extreme expressions of allegiance demanded of Cuban artists and writers is their cooperation with state security investigations of their peers and their signature as UNIAC members, which is the artist union, on official letters in support of state policies or against, quote unquote, imperialist aggression. Artist Juanse Gonzalez recalls that in 1989, when he was under pressure from police to cease performing in the streets, a Communist Party official showed him a letter signed by several of his peers that dismissed his creative endeavors as mere activism lacking artistic value. Such documents may be produced under conditions of secrecy for purposes of coercion, or such opinions may be solicited openly during trials against nonconformists. The use of artists' signatures on public statements is the state's favorite means of rebuttal to public protest letters penned by exiled Cubans and prominent foreign intellectuals, as well as international media coverage of Cuban state repression. An unfortunate example of this practice is the uh, April 19, 2003 letter that effectively condoned the arrest and sentencing of 75 dissidents in March of that year, a third of whom were poets and independent journalists. Entitled, A Message from Havana to Friends That Are Far Away, and Time to Coincide with the Anniversary of the Bay of Pigs Invasion, it was signed by 27 well-known Cuban cultural figures. Though the arrests were not overtly mentioned, the timing of the letter makes the subtext clear, and the text states that the international outcry was part of an anti-Cuban propaganda campaign being used to prepare the grounds for a military invasion of Cuba by the United States. Though the line between good and bad conduct is clearly drawn in Cuba, moving from one domain to the other can be a complex and protracted process for an artist. There is no single paradigm that sums up the dynamic between the artist and police, but there are patterns of treatment. Angel Delgado, this is the, an artist who I talk about in the first chapter who defecated on a Communist Party newspaper as a performance in 1990 and was uh, put in prison for six months. Angel Delgado's situation is exceptional because he was imprisoned, but also because his case has been publicly discussed extensively inside and out of Cuba. The experience of Juan C. Gonzalez, 
spread out over a decade of escalating disciplinary measures rather than determined by one extreme encounter is more a characteristic of the interplay among the Cuban policing apparatus, cultural institutions, and artists. Gonzalez was quite active in the Cuban art scene in the 1980s, but he is rarely mentioned in art historical accounts of the decade written by Cubans. Holly Block's Art Cuba, The New Generation, includes a photograph of his performance, The Afternoon of the Sandwiches, this in its timeline, but does not identify him or his art collective as the author. Juanse Gonzalez was a provincial art student who came to Havana to complete his studies and graduated from the University of the Arts in 1984. He began exhibiting installations in state galleries soon thereafter, and his work was acquired for the permanent collection of Havana's Museum of Fine Arts. Gonzalez staged a number of performances between 1984 and 1990, sometimes on his own, and other times as part of the Iman Collective and the Art de Group. That stands for Arte Derecho, Art Rights. Together with Jorge Crespo, Eliseo Barles, Amaury Suarez, and others. In 1987, his performance entitled The Year That Everything Turns Green, Va a Ver de Todo, was censored. For that performance, the title of which was a play on a phrase frequently used by Fidel Castro to signal future abundance, va a haber de todo, um, uh, Gonzalez painted a street cleaning hand truck, the Cuban army shade of green, and began to pick up garbage in the area of the Vedado district with many hotels. He was stopped and questioned by state security agents. Since he did not have proof that he was employed as a street cleaner, the agents proceeded to ask his family members whether he was receiving psychiatric care. The agents then threatened to arrest Gonzalez as a vagrant, since he, did not have, he had not had steady employment for more than six months, and confiscated his cart. A few months later, he was sent to work on a micro-brigade to build an apartment complex in Alamar. Although there were cultural bureaucrats who were willing to work with Gonzalez at that point in time, they did not protect him from censure by police. Even before Gonzalez began staging street performances with his collaborators, he had, he had had conflicts with state authorities. Like most artists in the 1980s, Gonzalez had a day job. Early in the decade, he was a designer for the Jose Marti Publishing House and refused to work on a book about the Mariel crisis that, in his opinion, presented a distorted view of events. He was fired from that publishing house in 1985. By 1989, he had lost another job as an illustrator for Uniac's La Gaceta magazine and was expelled from the union. According to Gonzalez, as pressure mounted from police, he began to be shunned by fellow artists who were afraid to associate with him. Statements were solicited from his peers to ratify that he was not considered a real artist. The police also warned Gonzalez that his collaborator Jorge Crespo was bad company because his father was serving a prison sentence. It bears noting that the Cuban legal definition of social dangerousness extends to those who associate with persons who have already been identified as undesirables. Therefore, partaking in suspect art events and socializing with suspect persons implies a certain risk. In 1988, Gonzalez and his collaborators launched the Reunion Project, consisting of street actions in the park at the corner of 20, uh, 23 and G Streets. 
As, the, as a protective measure, Gonzalez sought support from the Visual Arts Division of the Saiz Brothers Association, the political organization for young writers and artists, and received approval. The performances were not aggressive in their mode of address, but they dramatized social issues and personal frustrations. For example, in I'm not telling you to believe, I'm telling you to read, um, uh, Gonzalez asked passers-by to choose alphabet cookie letters to create words on top of photographic paper that they wanted to preserve or eliminate from daily speech. Among the desired words were travel, art, information, and loyalty. And among the undesirable words were censorship, police, repression, and doubt. By exposing the paper to the sun, the areas around the cookies darkened and the words became visible. The words participants wanted were kept, when the unwanted ones were left in the light so that the words would disappear from view. He was able to complete that performance, but on the 20th of April, April as Gonzalez and his Art de group marched down La Rampa with sandwich boards that described the corruption of bureaucrats, the National Revolutionary Police intervened, the boards were destroyed, and the artists were detained. Most artists from that period would have stopped courting controversy at that point, but Gonzalez continued. He staged an unsolicited intervention called Ego Art, a plea against censorship, at the opening of the National Salon exhibition at the Museum of Fine Arts. Dressed in a red and black prisoner's outfit, Gonzalez stood between the prize-winning artworks, wearing a sign that said, Title, Young Cuban Artist, Authors, John Revolution and Martha Culture, Media, attitude, brains, intellect, hair, viscera, bones, nerves, blood, shit, piss, and the five senses. Measurement, five feet, seven inches, and a 30-inch waist. Address, Cuba Street between bitterness and reform. Hmm. And the thing is, there are La Calle de Cuba entre Amargura y Reforma. Those are real streets, right? Vedado, Cuba, 1988. Although the title of the work refers to the experience of political repression in Cuba, Gonzalez's aesthetic strategies recalls other well-known performances in which artists put themselves and others on display to call attention to the social conditions of marginalized sectors. Argentinian artist Oscar Boni exhibited an actual working-class family in 1968 amid protests against the military dictatorship. In the 1980s, Belgian artist Francis Alice posed between artisans, plumbers, and carpenters seeking work who stand in the Zócalo in Mexico City wearing signs that identify them by their trade. Alice wore a sign identifying himself as a tourist. Since the 1990s, Spanish artist Santiago Sierra has become famous for exhibiting members of various exploited groups, undocumented immigrants, prostitutes, homeless, and manual laborers to call attention to the exploitative power dynamics in society and the art world. In the 1990s, Sierra staged two such works in Cuba involving unemployed men and sex workers without suffering any negative repercussions from state authorities there. The open references to corruption and censorship in Gonzalez's work elicited a much harsher response from Cuban authorities. By in 19, June 1988, a television program called Between Us, Entre Nosotros, was dedicated to rep a report on performance art in the street, using his projects as the principal example. Juventud Rebelde reporter and Communist Party hardliner Soledad Cruz published negative commentary suggesting that the recent performances had lacked artistry. 
She also argued that however experimental performance might be, it still needed experts to determine its value and explain its meaning to an otherwise confused public, which was a not so hidden assertion of the supremacy of institutional authorities and the party. Rafael Lopez Ramos, then director of the visual arts for the Saiz Brothers Association, countered with an ardent defense of performance as an important new art form and championed the use of the street by artists as a legitimate experiment. He also corrected Cruz's false claim that artists had appeared nude and urinated in public during the performances, understanding it to be a calumnious accusation. Not surprisingly, the party's position won out, and Gonzalez and his group were summoned for a public debate at UNIAC by Abel Prieto, president of the organization at the time. Now, we're at six, and I have a, a little bit more to go. Should I just finish, or do you have to, or do, should we stop? Go on? Okay. Such meetings have been used in Cuba as rit for ritual humiliation, as was the case of poet Everto Padilla. Gonzalez and his Arte group chose to turn the event into a performance. They hung a banner behind them that said, to foolish words, the silent, holy, bloody ear of Van Gogh. They placed a microphone, a Cuban flag, and a large mirror on an easel at the front of the room with a sign that said, if you have something honest to say, look in the mirror and state it. Your opinion is part of the larger work. After Abel Pieto made his introductions, Gonzalez, Jorge Crespo, and Eliseo Valdez stood up and sang the national anthem and then played a tape recording that repeated, closed space, I think, closed space, I think. While the tape played, the group distributed copies of an ironic poem against censorship to Holy Saint Dick. Before they departed, they broke the mirror, locked the audience in the room, ran out and placed signs on the lawn that stated, stated, step on the grass. The next day, Gonzalez and Crespo were detained and interrogated by police for 48 hours straight. Abel Prieto tried to coax them to change their ways with promises of exhibition venues to no avail. Instead, Gonzalez and Crespo, together with filmmaker Marco Antonio Abad, turned to human rights activism, providing information to Amnesty International. This crossover from cultural endeavor into unadulterated political activity constitutes the ultimate taboo for a Cuban artist, as it is precisely what the state fears could provoke widespread public unrest. Shortly after the UNIAC incident, Gonzalez and Crespo were sent to work in microbrigades in Pinal del Rio. By 1990, unable to present work anywhere in Cuba and under constant police pressure, Gonzalez left Cuba for good with the help of friends in Costa Rica. Crespo and Abad were arrested in 1991 for attempting to film an act of repudiation against the poet activist Maria Elena Cruz Varela and were in prison for two years before they went into exile. One of the few accounts of Gonzalez's artistic endeavors in Cuba appears in Luis Kamnitzer's study of the 1980s generation, New Art from Cuba. Though Kamnitzer interviewed Gonzalez as part of his research, he relied heavily on secondary reports about Gonzalez's work, but did not identify his sources. Kamnitzer's appraisal of Gonzalez's street performances is brief and somewhat contradictory. Without any detailed description of Gonzalez's work, he states in the body of his text that arts professionals considered it lacking in artistic merit and that lay people also found it to be offensive. 
This was the same position expressed in the artist's letter used as evidence by a party apparatchik, and also in the commentary of Soledad Cruz, the Juventud Rebelde reporter and protege of Carlos Aldana, the head of the Revolutionary Orientation Directorate for the Cuban Communist Party at the time. Kamnitzer leaves acknowledgement of Gonzalez's having received a favorable review to a footnote. Then, in another footnote, he seems to try to soften the implications of political repression by noting that while the artist was censored for street performances, he was not stopped from performing in a museum. The impression created is that Gonzalez was a bad artist without a following, rather than a political artist who was persecuted and marginalized by the police. Given the broader historical context of intensified censorship of Cuban art between 1988 and 1990 that was aimed at stopping a wave of critiques of state power, it seems appropriate to attribute the interruption of Gonzalez's practice to aesthetic, uh, 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 it seems inappropriate to attribute the interruption of Gonzalez's practice to aesthetic quality. In one of Soledad Cruz's commentaries about performance, she seeks to differentiate between what she calls an artistic proposal, which according to her criteria would be valid, and expressions of dissatisfaction with cultural administration, which she implies should be brought up at closed meetings rather than in artworks. In other words, the party took a position against art forms that might elsewhere be defined as institutional critique. While the party position is quite clear, the reactions of the public are not, since no exhaustive documentation of public reaction exists. Unanticipated public performances in any country invariably generate confusion by virtue of being out of the ordinary. But no photograph or testimony from Gonzalez's performances indicates that the onlookers were upset by his work. I am not attempting here to dismiss the question of aesthetic quality altogether, but rather to comprehend how it is used politically. In a country where the state exercises hegemonic control over the arts, but also recognizes the ideological value of presenting itself as a liberal benefactor in the field of culture, censorship is most effective when veiled, and most prevalent as the internalization of fears that prevent certain thoughts and actions from being expressed. Therein lies the full effect of Cuban panopticism. The deployment of formalist aesthetic appraisals has been a strategy for rationalizing the exclusion of socially critical art from the official cultural landscape in Cuba for decades. But it was perfected during the late 1980s when artists began to challenge conventions publicly, frequently using performance as a tool. This discursive practice has ensured that the Cuban art historical canon, which is cautiously man managed by the country's cultural institutions, conforms to the ideological demands of the state. Arts professionals do not have to demean themselves by engaging in crude forms of censorship. They simply use their professional judgment to determine that certain expressions are not good art. In the case of Juan C. Gonzalez, the artist who signed the letter that relegated him to the lesser status of activist claimed somewhat presumptuously that they wanted to prevent his inferior expressions from derailing more serious private conversations between artists and cultural institutions. The nail on his coffin, so to speak, came from another artist's assertion that he frequented the U.S. interest section in Havana, an indicator of extreme disloyalty. More recently, when superstar Cacho spoke publicly about the graffiti artist El Sexto, who had been brought to his studio by Cuban police, 
he demonstrated his political loyalties by dismissing the dissident's work as not real art. The message is clear. The police may have to watch out for those art imposters, but arts professionals should not recognize them as peers. The panoptic state that demands the absolute visibility of its subjects also has the power to erase them from history. Thank you. We can turn on the lights. Well, Americans don't often sponsor artists from Cuba. I mean, right now there's a lot of discussion because of the, um, you know, the pronouncements by Obama about reestablishing diplomatic relations. Um, and there are some exchange programs through which Cuban artists have come to the United States. But I don't, I mean, what I'm doing, I'm not writing something as a call to, you know, for people to respond. I mean, there are plenty of petitions online asking for people to do this or that. And there are lots of art, Cuban artists who have Kickstarter campaigns asking them, you know, support for their projects. And, you know, there are ways that different individuals with an interest in Cuba or in Cuban artists or in individual artists who happen to live in Cuba get involved, but I'm not trying to tell people what they should do. What I'm trying to do is to try to understand a very complicated process and a process and a system that is not very well understood from outside. Because the, re the discussions about Cuba tend to be extremely polarized, even in academia. Um, between those who want to see it as an entirely enabling system and those who want to see it as an entirely destructive one. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to understand is the interplay between the enabling and the repressive aspects of state power, because Cuba does exercise force in both of those ways continuously. What do you mean by enabling? Enabling, like the institutions that have been set up by the state, the subsidy of education, the subsidy of culture, the subsidizing of all of one's living expenses that makes living there much cheaper than living in other places so that artists don't have second jobs. You know, I mean, how many things, have, you know, what did I do? Clean toilets, babysit, uh, clean houses, work in hotels, uh, wait on tables, be a barmaid. You know, uh, these were all like shit jobs I have done in my life to support my art career, right? Um, and, you know, my my equivalents in Cuba don't do that, right? Um, they may complain about shortages and not having a lot of money, but they can sell two or three artworks at, an, at Havana Biennial and live for two years. You know, and I can't do that. So those are, you know, that's just, a, you know, some of the enabling aspects. Well, to some degree, yes, but the difference between the Mexican scenario and the Cuban scenario is that Mexico has a private sector. Now, they did until the 90s. Culture was largely managed by the state in Mexico, and the Mexican government used culture for diplomatic purposes very much in the same way that the Cuban government has used um, instrumentalized Cuban culture for diplomatic service uh, purposes. But there is a private sector, and in Mexico, I would say that the private sector plays an extremely important role in the contemporary art scene. And that was so that now the, the role of Mex the Mexican state as a cultural arbiter has more to do with the promotion of culture in the regions, the maintenance of museums, right, and uh, the kind of um, educational dimensions of culture, as opposed to being the main um, generator of contemporary art, right, which has pretty much been 
uh, taken over by the, the private sector and things like Humex and uh, you know so on and so forth. So and and the in Cuba there is private enterprise in relationship to the arts is limited to individual artists' ability to sell their work. Right now there was just an announcement made by Raúl Castro in the last month that different entities in Cuba will be able to negotiate foreign contracts on their own. So UNIAC, for example, will now be able to elements of the ministry. This is now 2015, okay? Up before that, it was like total top-down. Everything has to be approved from above, right? And totally centralized. So when the, the thing about... Um, I would imagine that Victa Blanda is kind of like the American theory of soft power in political science. And I'm not so sure if soft power completely describes the enabling functions of this, the Cuban state. Yeah. Because of the trajectories of their careers, they may cooperate at a certain point and then fall away or because they're trying to do both at the same time. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes it, it's uh, uh, expedient to cooperate when you're home and to seem very outré when you're away because that enfant terrible persona is more palatable in outside of Cuba. So you know, it's it's often it's hard to say. But um, the thing is that the 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 enabling functions of the state are harder and harder for the state to um, carry out because for me the enabling functions are the is the public sector. Right, which was total for a very long time. Right, so it's everything from state-controlled media, education, culture, right, on food distribution, um, you know, subsidized living, subsidized utilities. Well, uh, since 2013, more than half a million Cuban workers have been state workers have been laid off. Now the rhetoric about all of this is about cuenta propismo, right? Is about getting in, you know, private enterprise. But how do you engage in private enterprise without any wholesale market? Um, and also the limitations on private enterprise and the taxing of private enterprise make it very difficult for it to be actually lucrative, right? Um, so you know, there, so there's been massive layoffs and a shrinking of the budgets of all public se sector institutions. So, you know, this idea that UNIAC can go negotiate foreign contracts, it's kind of like the state is also saying, we're not going to fund you anymore. You're going to have to finance yourselves. And that has happened more and more. So you see that in, you know, the disappearance of medicine, right, that people call their relatives and friends abroad all the time and say, my doctor gave me a prescription for this medicine and I can't get it and you have to get it and send it to me because um, it's no longer available. Um, the diminution of the food rations. Um, and, you know, and then the shift of many foods that once were rationed and distributed for practically no money to the hard currency sector. So it's, it's, things don't disappear. They just become more inaccessible because you have to buy them with money that you don't have. So, you know, that is part of what's been happening, which, of course, you know, uh, feeds into the increased economic polarization of the society, which um, increases discontent and so on and, and so forth. Well, I think the principal condition that makes the counter surveillance possible is the introduction of cell phones 
into Cuba, massive uh, cell phone present because it's legalized in 2008. And the cell phones that come in have cameras and people start using them, not just bloggers, everybody starts using them. This idea of, you know, uh, I mean, it could be, you know, I'm videotaping my, my kid's birthday party, but it's also I'm videotaping this protest. And so I started to see things on YouTube that, you know, I've been studying Cuba for 30 years. I started to see things that I had never been able to see before. I'd only been able to hear about. Yeah. Right. And performances are now available. Yes, exactly. And so so that becomes, you know, and, and the, the ways that have been developed by Cubans to circumvent the controls, like, okay, you can't get onto the internet, but you can send with MMS, you can send small fragments of videos and pictures, um, and you can send messages to Twitter using a text message system. And so people get their in information out of the country very quickly. It, once upon a time in the 70s and 80s, it would take months sometimes for dissidents to get written testimony out of the country, right? I mean, it, you have to smuggle it out of a prison and then get somebody to take it out of the country. That person might be stopped. It could be destroyed, so on and so forth. So we're talking about a long time lag, right? And here, we're, it's instantaneous. So that the acceleration factor and the dissemination of the means of communication has really... Um, you know, produced a body of, of imagery that wasn't, didn't, didn't exist before, even though the events were, were taking place. So I think that is the, it's the technological shift has really uh, altered uh, things. And that is part of a culture of digital technology and piracy that has uh, derailed the centralized state control of information and media. It's not just that more people can communicate, it's that more people have access to a lot of things that they couldn't get before, right? I mean, 20, 25, 20, 30 years ago, Samistat was something that a few intellectuals would get, you know, somebody would smuggle in a book or a magazine, right? And now it's like all these uh, guys who are state workers are moonlighting, you know, putting satellite dishes on your buildings and um, people are making a living pirating television programs and movies and then distributing them. Once upon a time it was via DVD, now it's via flash drive. The flash drive is called El Paquete or the package, it costs about $2. And you get, you know, I mean, the house I was staying in in January, they were watching 24, like the latest installments of 24 all day long while I was every time I would come into the kitchen to get coffee or something there'd be somebody sitting down and watching 24 or some you know talk show from Miami right so th that and that would have been unthinkable once upon a time so though that has uh, that kind of thing has changed but the government has still been effective at controlling the dim dissemination of dissident information inside the island yeah. So that people who are much well, more well-known outside are less well-known inside as a, as a result of this. So I would say that that is, but the, what the counter-surveillance does is um, to uh, make it more, I think it makes it somewhat more difficult for the state to act in a very, very harsh way continuously. They are forced to negotiate. Um, and that's not necessarily something that they're, that the state is so happy about. Um, but I think that it explains, for example, why 
uh, political prisoner detentions were very long in the 60s and 70s and are now very short. Um, you know, 24 hours, 23 days, two weeks. I mean, El Sexto has been in prison since December 26th. That's very long. But, I mean, he, it, it was also like the fifth time that he'd been arrested, right? And now they just want to hold him so they can try him for something and give him a sentence the way they did with Gorky and, you know, put him away for a while. Right. Yeah, the, the trial is always about something, some other crime, right? That's the rhetoric. Of, yeah, well, I mean, with El Sexto, they tried to, to nail him for uh, domestic abuse, and then the case fall, fell apart. With Gorky, they got him on drug possession, but he's an epileptic, and he had all these pharmaceuticals that his, part of his family lives in Mexico, so he came back with a bunch of pills, and then they said that he was trafficking in pills, and that was how they got him. And then when they tried to arrest him, for disturbing the peace that was more directly related to his music, then that case fell apart. So, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's ongoing. This is an, it's a, an ongoing struggle. What happens is they are looked at long after the fact if something happens. Well, right? not always the case. And actually, there's a very interesting artist, Jill, and I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but it's M-A-G-I-D, and I don't know if she pronounces it Maggot right. or, yeah. And she did a piece in the UK where she was actually kind of in a, almost a kind of romantic interaction with a, a security guy who was watching her on the security cameras. Okay, so um, this is a, like, like a security camera in a building where there's actually... In an outdoor area. And she also did another similar project in the subway stations in New York. Where there is somebody watching sometimes. It's not, I mean, I, I agree with you that a lot of times it isn't, but sometimes there... There's no one watching. So, but, but I think the thing is that in the States, it's more like a deterrent, you know, but in some cases, there are actually people watching. Right. That's, that, yes, but, yes, but there are instances in which there are people watching. In any other city where such cameras exist, that people feel much more. Well, part of that is because before the cameras were there, there were people in the CDRs and there were cops all over the place and there were, you know, and, and you know, I mean, there's this kind of living with this, you know, fear that somebody might rat on you at some point, you know. I mean, you can't even write a poem in school without it getting sent to some political office, right? So, you know, in that kind of situation, the camera is just an extension of an already existent network that induces a certain sense of paranoia, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Well, you know, the thing is, I, I mean, I, I think that Cubans in general, not just artists, have been very adept at finding ways to infiltrate the technologies that they have very little official access to, okay? So you could be taken, for example, as I have been to, you know, you walk into somebody's backyard and then you go behind another building and you see like, 10 technicians there who are reassembling from broken machine parts cell phones and playstations and all this in other words the same kind of ingenuity that is exhibited by cubans in making cars from the 1940s and 50s still run american cars with russian parts and this and that and whatever they you know they nobody else in the world can do this they do the same with broken machines 
to get them, whether it's a computer or a phone or this or that. And so they cobble together these kind of Frankenstein technologies in order to do things, whether it's to, you know, cook in some cases or to wash clothes or to watch television or to get a television signal from the Cayman Islands or, or Florida or to be able to, like, uh, they, you have to hack iPhones in Cuba in order to get them to work with the Cuban chips. But there are engineers who specialize in this, right? So I give my family members old iPhones and they take them and, you know, in two hours they're running with a Cuban chip in them. Okay. And they do. Yeah. And they do. There's actually a group called um well, yeah, um, I, 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 I agree there, that there, there are parallels. I think the thing is, is that we did not have a, the state was, is not so, power is not so centralized in the state here, even though law enforcement is centralized in the state. So the comparison with law enforcement is very apropos, whereas, you know, there are, you know, probably like six, local papers in Brooklyn that have been covering police brutality forever and nobody reads them. And now, you know, you get one video and, you know, six million people learn about it immediately. And I think that's that the, the difference is that in Cuba it was word of mouth and now it's a video that gets posted somewhere. Did, did you have a question? Yeah, this is exactly what you were trying to say at that point. Well, the micro case happened in the end of the 60s, okay? Um, and when basically there was a process in the 60s of purge of consolidating power and but also of purging those groups that were perceived as internal oppo uh, opponents right it was i mean in leninist terms like it against sectarianism so the people who were involved with this were people who had been part of the part the socialist party in cuba prior to the revolution and just as the ushering in the era of sovietization Fidel is trying to get rid of anything that isn't the Communist Party that he wants to have that, so as he's allying himself with the Soviet Union. So many different groups in the 60s were accused of being, you know, potential threats or traitors or whatever, and they would be damned invariably with the same rhetoric, always that they were agent provocateurs, or they work for the CIA, or they were critical and therefore they're traitors, and that they're going to try to create some kind of international um, outcry against the Cuban government, right? Is that they were, the rhetoric was still extremely kind of vitriolic about how Cuba is on the defensive, we're at war, everybody hates us, everybody's going to kill us, everybody's going to destroy us, everybody's going to invade us. And there were several um, European uh, intellectuals who considered themselves of the left who had, were coming to Cuba in the late 60s to write studies of Cuba's version of socialism and they wrote things that had you know a little bit of criticism here a little bit of criticism there and they were invariably accused of being CIA agents and and so anybody who um, had cooperated with them was taken down. So this is the, the story the, the story behind the microfaction. What Hamlet is was is doing in his pieces is going back to these kind of moments of wounds in the history of the revolution, the moments of political violence, right? And resurrecting them 
in resurrecting the rhetoric of the UMAP camps, of the attack on the microfaction, of words to intellectuals, and putting them out there in a moment, you know, in 2008, 2009, 2010, where, you know, he sees that the whole kind of um, project, the political project and the ideological project has come apart. And now what do these words sound like is really the, the point of it. Um, but his method is rather, it doesn't involve so much new technology when he's presenting. I mean, he's doing just kind of old-fashioned Latin American, you put the newspaper on the wall kind of thing. That's the way that he was working. I mean, he's not living in Cuba right now, but when he was working in Cuba, that was the way that, that he was uh, working. I don't know if I'm answering your question. He does do, um, he has been working on animations with, he's got the best collection of archival, of archival material of Cuban press of any Cuban artist I know. He really is a pack rat and extremely good at getting material. And he creates some very interesting animations with these old, uh, uh, old pieces, but hasn't finished anything in a way that's ready to exhibit. So I'm kind of trying to push him to, thank you. <laughs>